Welcome to the HDC podcast. Due to some unforeseen technical issues, we were unable to capture Jago's message live at the 6pm service. Therefore, this is a re-recording. We hope that this message blesses you. Now, let's listen to Jago. Today, we're starting a two-week series about dilemmas about sex. Now, a good number of you have been asking recently for some more teaching on this whole area of sex, sexuality, and relationships. And admittedly, it is a hugely challenging area. It's a hugely controversial area too. And so I want to say two obvious things before I launch into this sermon for proper. And the two things are these. Firstly, I stand here as a married man. Susanna and I, we've been married for 17 years. We've got four children. And I'm aware that that is not the most common demographic type amongst us this evening. I obviously was single once myself, but I haven't been single for the last 17 years. And I'm quite obviously a man rather than a woman, which means my perspective is always going to be skewed. And so I ask for your forgiveness this evening if I say anything that comes from being too blinkered by not having been single for the last 17 years, or from not being a woman. So that's the first sort of obvious thing I want to say before I launch into it. And then the second obvious thing is this. I don't just stand here as a married man, but I also stand here as a sexual sinner. A forgiven sexual sinner, but still a sinner. I'm no different to any of you because I happen to be a vicar. I struggle with exactly the same kind of temptations as you do. And so as I speak, I'm not speaking as a superior in any way. I'm speaking as an equal with you. But what I've tried to do as best I can is to look to get to grips with God's Word, the Bible, and to look to understand how God's Word, the Bible, applies to each of us in the sexual arena. And to do that by sitting under the Bible's authority and letting it judge me. Not sitting above the Bible and judging it and acting and thinking as though I know better than God. And you know, if there's one thing above all that I would say that I'm praying for, for this little two-week series, it's this. I became a Christian age 17. Uh, In about three weeks' time, I'll have been a follower of Jesus for 25 years, a whole quarter of a century. And you know, the biggest shift that I've experienced in those 25 years is that I've moved from thinking that as a teenager, God is a killjoy out to spoil my fun. I've moved from thinking that as a teenager, and I've moved in my thinking over the 25 years to understanding that God is not a killjoy, but he is a loving, perfect, heavenly father who wants what is best for us. And my prayer for all of us this evening, is that we would see and we would understand in this arena of sex and relationships, that we would see that God is not a killjoy, but he's a good, good father who wants the best for us in this area of life, as in all of life. And I am only too aware that for many, that is a very, very ambitious prayer to pray. So before uh, we get underway, let me um, 
turn and read the Bible. I wonder if you turn to page 1148, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 20, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, We're going to look at other bits in chapter 6 and chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians as well. But just for now, I'm going to read three verses of uh, 1 Corinthians 6, the last three verses, starting at verse 18. So page 1148. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Paul writes this. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Let's pray. Lord God, we dare to pray that tonight... By the power of your Holy Spirit, you might show us that you are not a killjoy, but that you are a perfect Heavenly Father, even in this area of sex. Amen. They say that the sexual revolution began not in the 1960s, but actually before then, in 1953, when Hugh Hefner founded Playboy magazine, and he paid $50 to an unknown struggling actress to be a nude centerfold in the very first edition of his magazine. The name of that struggling actress? It was Marilyn Monroe. Since then, sex has increasingly been seen just as a natural desire, like eating and drinking. So you get thirsty, what do you do? You have a drink. You get hungry. What do you do? You have something to eat. You get aroused. What do you do? You go on Tinder. You hook up with someone. You have sex if they'll consent. Or if that doesn't work, you head to some online porn. Sex has increasingly, in our wider society, it has been liberated from being in the confines of a marriage between husband and wife. It's been severed from its link to making children. I have the right to do anything. That is the mantra of the sexual revolution. Now, they say that the sexual revolution began in 1953 with Marilyn Monroe in Playboy magazine, but it's a lie. The sexual revolution, actually, it was alive and kicking well before then. Just look at 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. And Paul quotes twice in this verse a slogan that was used in Corinth regarding sex. Have a look at the verse. It says this. It says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. Twice, Paul quotes this mantra. It's the same mantra. It's the same idea as the sexual revolution. I have the right to do anything. And this sexual revolution in Corinth, it's not just taking place out there in society where people are saying that we're free to have sex anywhere, anyhow, with whoever we like. But this is even taking place in the church. This is some people in the church saying, I have the right to do anything when it comes to sex. And it's no different today. It's a background of a sexual revolution. I mean, take a survey that was conducted at Soul Survivor a few years ago. 99% of the respondents identified themselves as Christians and 54% of the 25 to 28-year-olds had had sex outside of marriage. Over half of them. But the reality is that all the sex, all the freedom, all the results of the sexual revolution, it isn't producing mass fulfillment and pleasure, no. For many, it is producing loneliness and disillusionment. 
Joanna Coles used to be the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan magazine. She's now the editor-in-chief of Marie Claire magazine. And as far as I'm aware, she's not a Christian. She, she lives in New York, but she's British. And she's written a book called Love Rules, and it's about rules for dating in the 21st century. And in this book, she writes as follows. She says, getting naked and having sex with strangers is hard. We portray it as fun, and we pretend it is fun, but people crave intimacy, which is not easy to create. That's why Britain has just appointed a loneliness minister, she says. So how should we respond to all this as Christians? How should we respond? Well, first, here are two wrong responses for Christians to make. Here's the number one wrong response. The number one wrong response, just three words, is to say sex is bad. To say sex is bad, because it isn't. Some theologians in the early centuries warned married couples that the Holy Spirit left the bedroom when they had sex. Apparently, there was one bishop in the Middle Ages who went even further, and he told married couples too, and I quote here, to abstain from sexual intercourse on Thursdays in remembrance of Christ's rapture, on Fridays in remembrance of Christ's crucifixion, on Saturdays in honor of the Virgin Mary, on Sundays in commemoration of Christ's resurrection, and on Mondays out of respect for departed souls, which led to Tuesday being everyone's favorite day. Sex being bad was the view of some people in the church in Corinth too. If you look at the first couple of verses in the next chapter, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Have a look there, bottom of the page. Paul writes this, verse 1 of chapter 7. He says, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So that was the view of some people in the church back then, that no one should have sex at all. No sex at all. But what does Paul say in reply? Well, look at verse 2 of chapter 7. He says, Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So Paul's saying sex is not bad. No, sex is good. It is something that God created for our enjoyment in the right context. You see, God is not the great spoil sport of sex. God is its inventor. I mean, the book, right in the middle of the Bible, it is the Song of Songs. It's an erotic love poem between husband and wife. So the first wrong response to the sexual revolution is to say sex is bad. It's not. Sex is good. And then the second wrong response is to say this, another three words, to say marriage solves everything. That is wrong too. Too often the church has been guilty of acting as though singleness is a problem and marriage is the solution to that problem. But that is not true. That view leads to single people feeling second rate in the church and as though there's no place for them because they haven't reached this, this magical goal of marriage. And I personally, I want to apologize for the times when I think I have inadvertently given off this view. Marriage is not the goal of life. Don't get me wrong, marriage is a wonderful thing. It's for deep, intimate friendship. It's for serving God together. It's the the context of having sex and producing children. It's a visual picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. We should have a high view of marriage. But it is not the goal of life. I wasn't somehow lacking as a single person, and now I'm complete as a married person. Susanna, she is wonderful, but she doesn't complete me. Jesus Christ completes me. 
In fact, those of you who've been to a, a wedding that I've conducted recently in this church, and there have been plenty of them, so it's probably quite a few of you, you might be surprised by the prayer I use at the very end of the wedding service. This is what I pray over the couple as a final prayer of blessing. I play this. I pray the God of peace, so join you now that you may be glad of one another all your lives. And I love that, but it's a great prayer. If ever you're wondering what to pray for a married couple, that is a great prayer to pray, that they might be glad of one another all their lives. But then I continue this prayer, and I pray, and when he, God, when he that has joined you shall separate you. Now, what's going on there? Why am I suddenly praying about separation on a day when two people are coming together in marriage? Well, listen to how it continues the prayer. When he that has joined you shall separate you, May he again establish you with an assurance that he has but borrowed one of you for a time to make both more perfect in the resurrection through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, that prayer at the end of the wedding service, it's a reminder that marriage, it is not the goal of life. Marriage, it is a temporary institution built by God. It finishes when husband or wife die. Marriage, it is not eternal. It won't exist in heaven. The goal of life, it is a relationship with Jesus, not a relationship with a spouse. Because a relationship with Jesus, that does go on for eternity, being married to him. So marriage is not the goal of life, but nor is it the solution to life. Too often in Christian circles, that, that is the view, that you get married, that you're suddenly able to have all the sex that you want, and all your problems will then be solved. Not true. You know, most of the time, married couples don't actually have marriage problems. They have singleness problems, which then crop up in marriage. So for Susanna and me, most of our issues as a married couple these days come from both of us being rather stubborn and not willing to back down. Now, those are problems that we're stubborn. We were both stubborn as single people. We were stubborn as single people, and our past has an uncanny knack of showing up in our present. So if you're single here tonight, and if you would like at some point to get married, can I encourage you, please, would you have your main focus, not so much on finding the right person to marry, but on becoming the right person yourself. Focus more on your formation, not on seeking the other person. Because the kind of person that you want to marry, they won't want to marry someone who is a stubborn, selfish git. So if that's you, pray about that and work on it now. The kind of person you want to marry, they won't want to marry somebody who has an addiction to porn. So if that's you, pray about that and work on that now. Focus more on becoming the right person rather than finding the right person. And if you want to do more thinking on having the right view of marriage, not too low a view of marriage, nor too high a view, then the best thing to do would be to read the rest of 1 Corinthians 7. Because as you read the rest of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes about some some of the good things of marriage, but also some of the challenges. He writes about some of the good things of singleness, but also some of the challenges. Just to give you a few examples, he he talks about marrying someone who also shares a faith in Jesus. That's verse 39 of chapter 7. He talks about how being married means you have more concerns, less freedom. You're looking after a family while single people can be distraction-free and find it easier to live in undivided devotion to the Lord. That's verse 35. 
He talks about how married couples shouldn't deprive each other of sex and that people who are in a relationship but are not married should get married if they want to have sex. So verse, 35 and ver- verse 5 and verse 36 say that. So in terms of, of wrong responses to the sexual revolution, we've seen two. It's wrong to say that sex is bad because it's not. And it's wrong to say that marriage solves everything because it does not. So what is the right response as Christians to all that we see about sex in the world today? What's the right response? Well, here again, here are three words. Three words that I think best summarize the right response to the sexual revolution. And these three words, I think, but maybe they're not the first words that you would have thought of as the right response. But I think these are the right ones. The three words are this. Value your body. Value your body. People sometimes ask me what I would like to do if I wasn't a vicar. And I know the answer without doubt. I would love to be an auctioneer because it looks such fun. When I was 18, I worked in an auction house as a porter for about four months. And I remember one time, one of the auctioneers came in on a Monday morning with a broad grin on his face. And he'd gone to a car boot sale over the weekend. And in one car boot, there'd been a pile of old crockery. And as he sifted through this pile of old crockery in this sort of uh, dusty plastic box, he, he sifted through it in the back of this person's car. And he found this little ceramic dish. And he asked the people whose car it was, he asked them how much he could buy the little dish for. And they said one pound. And he haggled them down and he bought it for 50p. Well, a few weeks later, at auction, this little dish that he bought for 50p was sold for around £6,000. When it was thought to be of little value, the dish was slung in the boot of a car, not cared for, discarded, ill-treated. But when it was seen to be of great value, this dish, suddenly it was polished, it was mounted, it was in a glass display cabinet in an auction house. You know, it's the same with our bodies. When we really treasure our bodies, when we see them to be important and of huge value, well, then we will treat them better and protect them and use them sexually in the way that God has designed them to be used. Value your body. And here are three reasons why you should value your body. And these three reasons, they are nothing to do with the the shapeliness or otherwise of any part of your anatomy or my anatomy. It doesn't matter whether you've got a rippling six-pack or you've got a lumpy one-pack like me. Whoever you are, whoever you are, these are three reasons that every single one of us can and should value our bodies. So you ready? This is number one reason. Number one reason, because your body will be raised by God the Father. Have a look at our passage again. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. It's another of the Corinthian church's slogans. This is what they were saying. They were saying, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. You see, just as with the modern sexual revolution, so too the Christians in Corinth saw both eating and having sex as just natural desires, bodily functions, because they reckoned that God was just going to destroy the food, the stomach, the sex, the body, just destroy it all. But Paul replies, halfway through verse 13, if you have a look, he says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. 
By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Just as God raised Jesus bodily from the dead, so we will also be raised bodily. And that means that we cannot have a low view of our bodies and not value them. Because the God who made this entire world, he's not just interested in our souls, but he is interested in our whole bodies as well. Our bodies, they're not going to be destroyed. They're not sort of temporary shells that are just going to be thrown away and discarded like a piece of rubbish. No, they are going to be renewed for eternity. We are going to be raised up also for eternity. So they need to be treated well now. Second reason why you should value your body is because your body has been united with God the Son. Look at verse 15, it says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. You see, there's, there's no such thing as casual sex, where the sex has no consequences. We're united to Jesus, Paul says, And then we are uniting Jesus to a place that he doesn't want to go if we have sex outside of marriage. And that bit in in quote marks in verse 16 says there, the two will become one flesh. And that's Paul quoting from Genesis 2 verse 24, which is the blueprint verse for sex and marriage in the entire Bible. It shows why this this verse, it's not just about having sex with a prostitute, it's having sex at all outside of marriage. So remember the whole verse in Genesis 2 verse 24. It says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And Jesus quotes that verse, Genesis 2.24. He quotes it in Mark 10 verse 7. Paul quotes it in Ephesians 5 verse 31 as well as here. And that verse, it tells us the order of things. It says the order is to be united as husband and wife and then become one flesh through sex. Sex is to come within the context of marriage between husband and wife. And when we see as Christians that our bodies, they are united with Jesus, we can see why sex is to be within the covenant commitment of marriage. Because in the Bible, intimacy always goes with covenant commitment. I mean, just think about it. Just think if you were to pray to Jesus and you were to pray this kind of prayer. How would Jesus feel if you prayed this? If you prayed, Jesus, I want to know intimacy with you. Jesus, I want you inside my body by your spirit. Jesus, I want you to lead me. I want you to love me, but I don't want a commitment. Jesus, I don't want to forsake all others and follow you alone. I want to make my own decisions sometimes. Jesus, I want to connect to other gods as well as to you. Now, that is an offensive prayer to Jesus, isn't it? intimacy and exclusive covenant commitment they are always connected in the bible and if it goes that way with your unity with jesus why would it be any different with uniting with someone else sex intimacy is in the context of marriage exclusive covenant commitment the me too movement recently has been hugely important and hugely positive in many many ways but in some senses it doesn't go far enough It says that the prerequisite for sex is consent. And God says, no, no, no. Value your body far more than that. 
God says that the prerequisite for sex, it's not just consent, but it's covenant. That covenant commitment of two bodies uniting together for life in the covenant of marriage. And then the third reason that you should value your body. It is because your body is occupied by God the Spirit. Just look at verse 19. Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? A friend of mine, a church leader, when she speaks about relationships and dating, she always helpfully suggests that a dating couple shouldn't be more intimate with each other than they're prepared to be if they're sitting sitting together on the front steps of the church that they're a part of with people from the church walking by. Well, wherever we go, whatever we do, we haven't sort of just got a fellow member of HTC walking by. No, we've got the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, not just walking by, but he's living in us. He's, he's witnessing all that we do where our body goes, so the Holy Spirit goes with us. So value your body. Know God's high view of it. He has united your body with Christ in the past when you became a Christian. He occupies your body now with the Spirit in the present. And he will raise your body in the future for an eternity in the new creation. And if that's not enough, just look at how valuable our bodies are in verse 20. Paul says, he says, you're not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. And that price was Jesus' death on the cross. We are that valuable to God. So please, can I urge you, please treat your body as the precious thing that it is it's not just to be sort of slung in the boot of the car like a bit of old crockery to be given away cheaply value your body but let's apply this now to two situations which we will all face in the last 10 minutes first of all let's apply it to temptation in the sexual arena and then secondly to failure in the sexual arena So first of all, how do we respond to temptation? And the answer is, verse 18, another three words, the answer to respond to temptation, sexual temptation, the answer is flee sexual immorality. That word, sexual immorality, it is a translation of the Greek word porneia, from which we get the word pornography. And when you look at all the references across the whole of the New Testament for this word porneia, it is clear that this word that's translated sexual immorality, it refers to all engagement in sex outside of a marriage between husband and wife, whether that is extramarital sex or premarital sex. But particularly, what I'd love you to do is just look at how Paul continues verse 18. So verse 18, he says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually, sins against their own body. You see, there is no such thing as a hierarchy of sin, as though God thinks sexual sin is worse than pride or injustice or whatever. But there is a sense that sexual sin has worse consequences for ourselves. So if you or I, if we steal from the tax man, we can put it right, we can make amends. But sexual sin is sin so directly against my own self. It's, it's hurting me. It's hurting my body. Often having such devastating consequences. It says whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And if we're honest, we know that. Sex, it, it bonds you emotionally. It bonds you physically, psychologically. And so if we're being too sexually intimate outside of marriage, it has a big impact on us. 
few weeks ago, during half term, we went as a family to Devon for a few days' holiday. And uh, we were staying in this little cottage, and as we were leaving uh, to come back to London, there was a, a couple arriving who were coming to stay in, in the cottage after us. And we, we knew of them. We didn't know them well, but we knew them a little bit because he's also a vicar. He's a, they're a bit younger, the couple, than us. Uh, and this, his wife, the vicar's wife, she said to me and Susanna, she recognized us. She said, I remember you both from the Stewards Trust. The Stewards Trust is a, a Christian organization that, that runs Christian holidays, particularly for teenagers. And this, this, this woman, she said, she said, thank you so much for all the talks that you both did on those holidays when I was a teenager. She said, I particularly remember the one you did on sex and relationships. Thank you so much for it. And you know, I know exactly why she remembered that talk particularly. She remembered that talk particularly because as Susanna and I gave that talk, I ended up crying. And not just crying, but I ended up blubbing like a baby. And I'll tell you the reason why I did. The talk was to about 70 or 80 teenagers. But amongst them, there were, there were four or five uh, teenage boys. I think they're probably about 15 years old. And they thought they were pretty cool, pretty tough. And they started asking all sorts of questions, like if it wasn't okay to have sex outside of marriage as a Christian, was it okay for their girlfriends to give them blowjobs and things like that? And as they said these things, I just, I just burst into tears. It was rather embarrassing, but you know why I cried? I cried because I knew how much hurt would be caused by the action of these boys. Hurt to other people, but also hurt to themselves. And it pained me. It pained me because I knew how much hurt it had caused Susanna and me in the past that both of us in various ways, although we'd never had sex, either of us, before we were married, we'd both done things sexually with other people that were far too intimate and which had hurt other people and hurt ourselves. Now this evening, nearly all of us here will be older than those 15-year-old boys. But it is still exactly the same message to each one of us flee from sexual immorality flee from it because it is so devastating verse 18 whoever sins sexually sins against their own body and so the question is what what is this command to flee from sexual immorality what does it mean for you or me in our own situation whether you're currently single dating or married For the unmarried person, verse 18 doesn't invite you to think, how far can I go towards sex? But rather, how far can I run from inappropriate behavior? You know, Susanna and I, as we've done marriage prep with engaged couples, we have never, ever met a couple who regretted not going far enough physically as they dated. But we've met plenty who regretted going too far. So as examples, in my opinion, a bad idea is to go on holiday together and sleep in the same room. And in my opinion, a terrible idea is to move in together before you get married. Because even if you are able to control yourself from not getting too intimate with each other, which I very much doubt, you are definitely going to cause plenty of other Christians to stumble and fall into sin. Because they will follow your example, they will move in together, and then they will start having sex together because they haven't got the self-control that you've got. Or internet porn. 
It is a huge challenge for so many. It has such a devastating impact on people's ability to know intimacy in their real romantic relationships and to flee from it, to to run from it. The key thing to do practically seems to be being accountable with others. Being accountable to another friend. Even using software to help you be accountable. And it's not just the actions, but the attitudes. I've known so many painful pastoral situations come about as a result of people being ambiguous in their romantic relationships. Whether it's two people spending a lot of time with each other and one thinks that this is the start of some serious romantic relationship, but the other person just thinks that they're just friends. So please be clear. Don't be all vague in the area of romantic relationships. Be clear. Whether it's internet dating, and just by way of a quick aside, I'm not saying don't do internet dating. I'm not saying that. Internet dating can be great. But if you do, please make sure it's a Christian site like Christian Connections or this new one, Salt. And then please, would you ask yourself, is it possible to internet date without just judging people solely on their external looks as you swipe this way and that? And with internet dating, please make sure you're not ambiguous so that the other person thinks you are only going for a date with them and this is an exclusive thing just between the two of you, but actually you have got six coffees lined up with six different people over the next six, different, six days and you are just checking out all the different options. So please be clear. Be clear, particularly with internet dating, you are more anonymous You're not doing the dating in community as with regular dating if you go out on a date with someone here at church. So please make sure you don't behave any worse with internet dating because it is more anonymous and so you're less accountable. Flee sexual immorality. And verse 18, it is no less challenging to the married person. Verse 18 does not invite the married person to think it's okay now I'm married. Now I'm married, I won't have a problem with sexual immorality. No, of course not. Verse 18 makes the married person think just the same as for the single person. How far can I run from sexual immorality? How can I have right boundaries with anyone who isn't my spouse? And again, it can be just as much in the attitudes as the actions, particularly with those of the opposite sex that we work with who will often spend more waking hours with than our spouse, making sure that we, aren't provi- that we aren't providing them and they aren't providing us with an unhealthy level of emotional support that could lead to something more. The reality is the workplace is an affair incubator. According to a recent survey, 48% of workers have known a married colleague to have had an affair with someone else in their workplace. So that's how to respond to sexual temptation. And just note the difference there. With most other temptation in the Bible, what does it tell us to do? It tells us to resist it, to resist the temptation. But with sexual temptation, it doesn't just say resist it. It says flee it. Flee it. Get as far away from it as you possibly can. So finally, how do we respond when we fail sexually? And I stand here as someone who has certainly failed in the sexual arena. I failed in action, and I failed in my thoughts. And what is the response to our failures? Another three words again. The response to our failures is this. To know God's forgiveness. 
know God's forgiveness. If you look back up to near the top of the page, into 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, it's quite a list. Paul writes, neither the sexually immoral, that's the, the pornea word again, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now let me say a few things about those two verses. First of all, this list is not listed by Paul because they are his top ten sins. Now he lists them because they are the sins particularly pertinent to the church in Corinth. Notice again that sexual sins are not singled out as worse than others. So he talks about religious sin there, idolatry. He talks about material sins, greed and theft and swindling. There's no pecking order. Notice too that homosexual sin is not singled out as worse than heterosexual sin. In fact, just on that particular one, I'm going to focus on homosexuality for most of the sermon next Sunday. So please do come back next Sunday as we'll think about that more then. But let's face it, for all of us, as we look at this list in verses 9 and 10, well, there probably will be those here who have committed adultery. There will probably be those here who have had homosexual sex. There will be those of us here who have been greedy and deceitful in our careers. There will be those of us here who used our words as slander to put others down. And most serious of all, there will be those here who think we are totally fine, but whose self-righteousness is perhaps the most deadly sin of all. You and I, we cannot evade this list. But please hear this. This warning is not addressed to anyone who has ever sinned in any of these ways. No. It's rather addressed to those who continue and who persist in doing these things without any effort or desire to change their ways. In fact, actually, as I look at the list, I wonder if in the list, the one that may be most relevant and most challenging to most of us here is the word drunkard. To those who think that there isn't anything wrong with getting a bit drunk, it's almost acceptable in middle-class London Christianity. And so we continue and we persist in getting drunk without any effort or desire to change our ways. Just as with sex, God says the same regarding alcohol. He says, value your body. But for Christians... For people who have turned to Christ, not because we think we're good, but because we recognize we are bad and we need forgiveness and we can have that forgiveness in Jesus. For Christians, we don't need to fear these verses despite the fact that we are all, all of us, we're struggling with sin. We don't need to fear these verses because of the wonderful words of verse 11. There will be some of us here who are crippled with guilt in this area of our lives. We long to rid ourselves of memories that haunt us. We may still be suffering the consequences of decisions in the past that we now know were wrong. Perhaps there's some habit or some addiction or some recurring temptation that we cannot rid ourselves of for all our trying. We feel such shame. Some here will feel false guilt and you've done nothing wrong in particular instances. Maybe you have been a victim of sexual abuse. And I long that you might know God's deep healing for you. But for all of us, all of us, we will have moments of guilt. And at times our feelings of guilt can be overwhelming. But no matter how dirty we feel, we can know God's complete and total forgiveness. 
Paul says, look at it, verse 11, just look at verse 11, breathe it in. This is what he says. He says, that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. Literally, that is, you were made holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. For Christians, Jesus has done something for you. He died on the cross for you to take on himself your sin and your judgment. Jesus has done something for you and Jesus has done something in you. He has given you his spirit to live in you, to begin to change you from the inside out. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's done for you. And by the Spirit of our God, that's what he's done in you. The story that we are a part of as Christians, our response to this sexual revolution, our response is not just that we've got to try and sort of hold these certain sexual standards and just manage it all in our own strength, in our own efforts, just try really hard. No, that's a, that's a rubbish story. That story, that ends in failure if we're just trying in our own efforts. Now, the story that we are a part of is a story about being connected to the one who offers us the fullest and the most satisfying life there is. It's the story of being connected to the one who is not a killjoy, but who is our perfect heavenly father. And that father, he values us. We are so precious to him. And he asks us in turn to value our bodies that we might flourish both now and into eternity. The sexual revolution, it looks to be all about freedom. But it ends up mastering us. Jesus looks to be all about restriction, but he ends up being the one master who brings freedom. The Bible, it starts with a wedding day in Genesis 2, and it finishes with a wedding day in Revelation 19. And on that final wedding day, between us and Jesus... We can fall into his arms, knowing that that is the one wedding day that can make everything all right. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for each one of us. Father, thank you that you value us so much that you bought us at the price of your son. And Father, would you help each one of us in turn to value our bodies as we recognize the great value you place on them. Holy Spirit, for those who feel covered in shame, Holy Spirit, please, would you wash that shame totally away in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by your power. 
Holy Spirit, for those who feel caught in cycles of sexual failure that they can't seem to flee from, we pray that you would bring release by your power. For those, Father, who for all sorts of reasons struggle with seeing you as a perfect heavenly Father in the area of relationships, please would you demonstrate today more than ever that you are not a killjoy, but the one master who brings freedom. Lord God, would you come and would you give grace and would you give courage to those who know that things need to change. For those who have recognized and been convicted by your spirit tonight and know that there is a need in some particular area to flee sexual immorality, please, Lord, by your power, would you give these people your grace and your courage to flee. And for all of us, Lord, by the power of your spirit, Would you help us to live our lives and to use our bodies to honor you? And we pray this in Jesus' name.